This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Back in September, we started a journey through the Bible. And uh, before we get into the text that's in front of us today, I want to kind of take a pass at summarizing the story. I want to summarize it from the perspective of God's mission through humanity in the purpose of creation. It's a little bit of an aside here before we get into the to the, uh, the text. The Bible is a single story, but it can be difficult to see that when we're zeroing in on the particulars of each passage. We kind of lose track of what the forest looks like as we look at each tree. Uh, so I want to try to give you a perspective on how does, this, how does the Bible unfold as a single story. Um, we get a glimpse of that in God's words to Adam and Eve. There are certain responsibilities that he wanted them to fulfill, certain conditions he wants to bring about through them. So let me show you Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God wants, when you look at that, God wants Adam and Eve to have children, for their children to have children and so on. God wants the earth to be a populated place. There's a little detail with the phrase, fill the earth, that we can miss if we don't slow down. And that's this. How do we reconcile filling the earth with God's placement of Adam and Eve in Eden? How do we reconcile the call to fill the earth with God's placement of Adam and Eve in Eden? Clearly from Genesis 3, life outside of Eden is a little rougher than life inside of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they got kicked out. So how are they supposed to fill the earth without leaving Eden? Greg Beale was reflecting on this. He writes, Genesis 1.28 asserts that, there, that he is to, Adam is to subdue the entire earth, a goal that could not have been completed by staying in the confines of the garden. He would begin to rule in the arboreal sacred space partly by subduing the serpent And then he would continue to fulfill the goal, moving outward and reigning until his rule was extended over the entire earth. Similarly, John Walton says, if people were going to fill the earth, according to Genesis 1, we must conclude that they were not intended to stay in the garden in a static situation. Yet moving out of the garden would appear a hardship since the land outside the garden was not as hospitable as that inside the garden. Perhaps then we should surmise that people were gradually supposed to extend the garden as they went about subduing and ruling. Expanding the garden would extend the food supply as well as extend sacred space. I want you to see is that in Genesis 1.28, we have a, a, a kind of a threefold mission that God wants to accomplish through human beings. They were to be fruitful. God wanted the earth to be filled with human beings, a populated place. They were to expand the borders of Eden. God's design was for the earth as a whole to be his dwelling place. A ginormous garden of Eden, if you will. 
And third, they were to be obedient to God's instructions. Obviously, if they weren't, this wouldn't happen. This threefold mission would never be accomplished. Threefold mission in Genesis 1.28, for there to be a populous people living in God's place under God's rule. Populous people living in God's place, in God's presence, under God's rule. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, this threefold mission never changes. When, Adam, when, when God speaks to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he promises to make them into a great nation, a populous people. He promises to bring them into a land where he will dwell with them. And he says in Genesis 17 that he will do this for them as long as they obey Populous people living in God's place under God's rule. Same threefold charges given to Israel through Moses to make them into a great nation. A populous people, bring them into a flourishing land where he will dwell with them, living in God's place. And he says he will do this for them as long as they obey, living under God's rule. A populous people living in God's place, living under God's rule. Let me fast forward in this story. This threefold mission is present in the Great Commission passage in Matthew 28. Nothing changes. Jesus tells his disciples to go make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. Make more of them. Expand this population of people who are disciples. Grow. Increase the population of my people, Jesus is saying. Now, God's presence is no longer a geographical land in the New Covenant, right? God's presence becomes the church. Not a space, not a building, but a people. The global body of genuine believers in Christ is the dwelling place of God. So make more disciples, bring them into the church where I dwell, and then Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. A populous people living in God's presence under God's rule. That sums up the conditions of the new heavens and the new earth. A populous people living in God's place under God's rule. That is the summary, in one, at one angle at least, of the storyline of Scripture. God's threefold mission through human beings to accomplish those things, for there be a populous people living in God's presence and God's place under God's rule. All of this, of course, is reiterated in some way, shape, or form in every book of the Bible. That's the direction it's going. This is the goal. This is the mission of the church. This is God's mission in the world. And that includes the book of Joshua, where we're going to turn our attention today uh, turn, if you would, to Joshua 5. We're going to start looking at verse 13. Israel is already a great nation. They're a populous people. They've crossed the Jordan River. They are now in the land that God promised to provide them. But in order to understand the message of Joshua, we have to figure out what the land signifies to the people. We get glimpses of that throughout the Pentateuch, the Torah, First five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy 12, verse 10. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. This idea is 
reiterated again and again throughout the Pentateuch and into the historical books. This land signifies rest. That doesn't mean opportunities for naps or getting a good night's sleep. Rest is a theologically loaded word in the Bible. After God had finished creating, he rested on the seventh day. What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean he was tired. God doesn't get tired. Rest means God took a step back. He looked at all he had made and said, yes, this is the way things are supposed to be. Rest in the Bible is a deep existential sense of settledness. Rest is being able to take a step back and say, yes, this is the way things are supposed to be. This is what the land signifies to Israel. It signifies rest. But when they crossed the Jordan River, this rest didn't magically appear. They had work to do. In fact, in the passage that we're looking at today, they had a battle to fight. Jericho is the scene of the battle for rest. Let's read. Chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out, no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. So here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at this battle for rest, and we're going to look at it under these categories. We're going to look at the precursors to battle, the tactics of battle, and the victor of battle. The precursors to the battle for rest, the tactics of the battle for rest, and the victor of the battle of rest. First, the precursors to battle. We see two of them in this story. Number one is asking the right question. (laughs) Asking the right question. Joshua and Israel are in the vicinity of Jericho. Their orders are clear to take the city. While he's getting ready for battle, he sees this mysterious man standing before him with a sword drawn. Now, Joshua's a courageous guy. He gets up in his face. He says, are you for us or for our enemies? The man's reply is humorous. Neither. Neither. He's flipping Joshua's question on its head. In effect, he's saying to Joshua, Joshua, you're asking the wrong question It's not about whether I'm on your side or not. The question is, are you on my side or not? Joshua is not ready for rest. He is not ready for a sense of deep existential settledness. In order to prepare for that, Joshua needed to begin asking a different question. The question is not, how does God fit into your plans? The question is, how do you fit into God's plans? In the battle for rest this battle for deep existential settledness, a precursor to all of that is learning to ask the right question. Not, is God on my side as I attempt to execute my plan for my life in the world? But am I on God's side as he executes his plan 
for my life in the world? How do I fit into God's plans? One of the reasons you don't have soul rest, one of the reasons you're unsettled in life, one of the reasons you're restless, is that you're playing the role of general, and you've got God serving as your lieutenant. If you're going to find rest, you have to start asking the right question. Barbara Boyd was teaching a group of college students at a Bible camp in Colorado several years ago. And she put her finger on this through an illustration. She said to the students who were gathered there that at the distance between the earth and the sun, which is roughly 93 million miles, if that distance was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the diameter of our one little Milky Way galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. One galaxy among billions. In Hebrews 1, she said, we're told Jesus holds this universe together by the word of his power, his pinky finger. And then she said, now, is that the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? One of the reasons you're restless in life is you've asked God to be your assistant. You have your plan, you have your agenda, you're asking God to fit in with it. That's not the path to rest. The precursor to rest is learning to ask the right question. How do I fit in with God's plan? The second precursor is bowing the knee in worshipful submission. Now when Joshua realizes this man standing before him wasn't his assistant, he fell face down to the ground bowing before him. He took the posture of worshipful submission. Why is bowing the knee in worshipful submission to God a precursor to rest? Why is that a precursor to a sense of deep existential settledness? We'll go back to God's threefold mission for creation. A populous people living in God's presence, living under God's rule. Finding rest through worshipful submission to God is how human beings were built. It's living in line with our telos. You remember us talking about that a few weeks ago? That term telos is the appointed function, role, or goal of something. Deep existential settleness can't be found any other way. That's living in line with our telos. Bowing the knee in worshipful submission is living in line with our appointed function. That's the way to deep existential settledness. One of my previous churches, there was a young man in his 20s who would show up at church sporadically. He was a high-octane, social, extrovert type of guy. But he'd show up He'd show up in church in spurts. I'd see him four or five Sundays in a row. He'd be riding a high, on fire for Jesus, but then he'd disappear for two to three months at a time. And then he'd come back, and the cycle would start all over again. 
Finally, I said to him, hey, Brad, when you disappear, where are you? Where are you going? What are you doing? He'd grow a bit sheepish, but he was quite transparent. He'd say, oh, man, I've just been struggling. I've been struggling with women and alcohol and drugs. You know, the party scene. Brad's trying to find rest. He's trying to find rest. He's scouring the countryside, looking for a deep sense of existential settledness. But he's refusing to bow the knee in worshipful submission. That's why this cycle continued for months and years in his life. Now in this scene in Joshua, Joshua's ready for rest. He's asking the right question, not how does God fit into my plan, but how do I fit into God's? And Joshua has bowed the knee in worshipful submission to God. God has Joshua right where he wants him. These are the precursors to the battle for rest. Let's look second at the tactics of battle. The battle tactics that God gives his people here are strange. They're to march around the city walls one time each day for six days. And on the seventh day, they're to march around the city seven times. The priests are to sound the trumpets. The people are to give a loud shout. Bada bing, bada boom, the walls fall down. Now in these battle tactics, it's clear God wants to draw attention to the number seven. Seven horns, seven priests, walking around the city seven times on the seventh day. We get it, okay. Very first occurrence of the word seven occurs in Genesis when God rested. The Hebrew word for seven and Sabbath has the same root. You know what it means? Satisfied. Full. Completion. Perfection. Existential settledness. Now think about this tactic that God has his people employ from the perspective of a traditionally trained warrior. I wonder what a Canaanite soldier would have been thinking. As battle tactics go, this must look pretty ludicrous. The maneuver's got to look stupid. To a traditionally trained warrior, it looks pathetic. This is not any way to win a military battle. But it is God's prescribed way of finding rest. Now think for a moment about the options that our culture provides you, promising you rest. Think about all the marketing we're bombarded with, where what is promised is rest. Let's get practical with this. I want to show you a 90-second commercial. 90-second commercial, are, uh, those are odd. A 90-second commercial that Apple ran ad nauseum this last Christmas season. Okay? Take a look at it, and then we're going to talk about it.
iPhone listening to some music. She bumps into this guy, puts the earbud in his ear, and they're transported into Apple's version of the promised land, where apparently there's something goofy going on with the physics there. Lights, snow, dancing, oneness, harmony, otherworldliness. They're trying to communicate that this land that they're in provides existential settledness a deep sense of peace and rest to get us to say, yes, I want that. When I look at that world, I think that is a better world than the one I'm in. Now, when they snap out of it, what did you notice? It happens fast and it's a minute detail, but it's the crux of the marketing. The earbud is no longer in his ear. Message? No iPhone? No promised land. Marketers of products have to sell you an experience. Every marketer knows innately something about human nature we find irresistible. We long for rest. We long to be in a world where we can look at and say, ah, yes, this is the way it's supposed to be. Every marketer innately knows that. You're promised this through the humor on television sitcoms. You're promised it through romantic novels. You're promised it, uh, the promised land is a beach in the Caribbean somewhere. It's a magic castle in Florida. Now, some of these are good things, and they have their place, but none of them can offer you existential settledness. None of them can offer you rest. Now, all of those things would have been battle tactics prescribed by the traditionally trained warrior in Jericho. But that's not the battle tactic God employs. God's prescribed way of finding rest is a maneuver that looks pathetic and foolish in the eyes of a traditionally trained marketer. And what is the battle tactic? What is the battle tactic God prescribes to find rest? We see that in our last point, the victor of battle. The scene from Joshua 6 is mentioned in Hebrews 11, verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. Now, the book of Hebrews, one of the main themes in the book is rest. Particularly chapters 3 and 4, it's all about rest. 
Chapter 11 has been described as the hall of faith. Old Testament character after Old Testament characters mentioned. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went. By faith, Moses' parents hid him. And so on and so on. By faith, by faith, by faith. Faith is the prescribed battle tactic to find rest. Let's get something clear. Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. Okay? Marching around the city did not bring down the walls of Jericho. Blowing seven trumpets did not bring down the walls of Jericho. Shouting really loudly did not bring down the walls of Jericho. God brought down the walls of Jericho. And all he asked his people to do was to trust him and obey him. Faith is the prescribed battle tactic to find rest. It's a maneuver that the world looks at and says it's ludicrous, but it is God's prescribed way of finding rest. But faith needs an object. It's faith in something, not just faith existing in the nebulous atmosphere. After all these Old Testament characters are mentioned in Hebrews 11, we read this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all of these Old Testament characters, since they sit in the stadium of the Christian life, as it were, watching those still alive participate in the game, since we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Here it is, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Faith in Jesus, the victor of the battle, brings about rest. Who is the mysterious commander that appeared before Joshua? It's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus. This is what theologians call a theophany. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. This is not an angel because angels are quick to refuse the bowed knee. When someone bows before an angel, the angel says, get up, don't bow before me. This commander doesn't object to Joshua bowing the knee before him. This is the pre-incarnate Christ, the theophany. He appears before Joshua as a warrior. He prompts Joshua to change the way he's approaching the battle for rest by getting him to ask the right question and getting him to bow the knee. And then bringing down the walls of Jericho that stood between God's people and the rest that God had promised them. So instead of employing traditional battle tactics to find rest, instead of trying to ramp up your notoriety to find a deep sense of satisfaction, instead of turning to movies or alcohol or sex or money to find rest, turn to Jesus to find rest. And what does that look like, practically speaking? On the one hand, it starts by asking the right question. How do I fit into Jesus' plans. Jesus is working a game plan for the world. He's on a mission, and he'll accomplish that mission with or without us. The question is, how do I fit into that? And then the question is not, how does Jesus fit into my plan? doesn't stop there. Have you and do you continue to bow the knee in worshipful submission to Christ? Well, how do you know? How do you know if you've done that? Let me close with giving you three 
practical tests to determine what you worship. Three practical tests just to run through your mind to determine what you worship. If you are ever in the presence of something and time flies, in other words, it doesn't matter how long it takes, when you're there, you don't care how long it takes. One hour, two hours, three hours, time flies. You're not even aware of time. You're enjoying it so much. That is something you worship. You know why? When it gives us a sense of timelessness, we are experiencing eternity. We're experiencing eternity. When you're experiencing a certain small freedom from time, you're lifted up out of time. So what is that thing? What is it you can think about and contemplate effortlessly and get a sense of timelessness? Anything you enjoy like that, you're worshiping. Second, the things you worry about the most tend to be things you worship. Things in your life where you say, if something goes wrong with that, because that's your God. That's the thing in your life that stabilizes you. It gives your life meaning. It could be a thing, a person, a cause, an issue. It's something your self-image is built upon. The things you worry about the most tend to be the things you worship. Third, when there's a conflict between competing demands, where do you most effortlessly put your time and your money? Where do you really put your money? Why do you think when Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also? What do you think he means by that? What you always seem to have the money for, no matter how bad things get, is what you worship. Three tests to determine what you worship. So here's the question. When you're spending time with Jesus, do you lose track of time? Do you lose track of time? Maybe you have the word open. Maybe you're spending time in prayer. Do you lose track of time in that moment? You worship Jesus. The only thing that really causes you any kind of anxiety is the glory of Christ, the proliferation of the gospel, seeing God's threefold mission for humanity brought about. You worship God. If your time and money flow effortlessly, to Jesus and his chosen instrument for mission in the world, the church, you're worshiping him. Bowing the knee in worshipful submission to Christ, the victor of battle, is the only way to rest. Let's pray. Jesus, we are in constant need of reorientation. We drift into a me-centric way of viewing the world where you serve as our assistant. I pray we would make you general. 
And as we think about the battle you've fought and won for us, may we bow the knee in worshipful submission to you. That's the pathway to rest. So many of us need it. We need to be reminded of it. We are restless. We are constantly looking for the next magic bullet that provides us with a deep sense of satisfaction. But we need to look no further than you, Jesus. I pray that in our closing moments of worship, Jesus, you would reorient our worlds. You would reorient them. Take up your place in the center, high and exalted. We do that now to your glory alone.